Good morning, class! For today's history lesson, we're going to talk about someone very important. The President of the United States of America. Now, I'm sure a lot of your parents have told you that maybe one day you'll grow up to be the President. I want to let you know right now that that is a lie. Not one of you in this class will ever be President. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 6 of the Almost Presidents Podcast. I'm Ryan. And I'm Kevin. And this is our monthly podcast where we talk American presidential politics through the lens of the loser. So Kevin, how's it going this month? You hanging in? Yeah, pretty good. Um, the fall weather's coming. It's getting cold, uh, which I don't like personally, but you know. Yeah, I feel like we always start by talking about the weather, but for what it's worth, I really have been trying to eyeball the the leaves changing as much as I can because it really is just beautiful to look at. Yeah, I, I will say that is true. It is it is fall is definitely the most beautiful time of year for sure. Yeah, and I guess there's always that like poetic irony to it because all the beauty of the leaves changing means that they're like dying, right? Right. Yeah. Right. I and mean, everything looks dead for a whole bunch of months, and then you know you get to spring, and uh, also a beautiful month. I guess the only drawback, which I'm, I'm willing to live with, is I have allergies um, in the fall. And in the spring. So. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, fall and spring. That's like a double double whammy. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's always a little uh, little something. It's not ideal, but uh, definitely, definitely manageable. But with that being said, I mean, maybe I'm getting impatient, but it is nearing the end of week two of me trying to get Doug Burgum to come on our podcast. Still no reply. Yeah, eventually I feel like we just have to, you know, strong arm him and be like, look, if you don't come on now, we're never going to give you an interview again. And obviously we haven't given him one, but I feel like we might be the best he's got. Yeah, I guess we might have to get more aggressive with our requests because I don't think he's going to be in the race for much longer. But I think it'll be a big day for us when we get an almost president on the almost president's podcast. Yeah, that would be that would be pretty cool. I mean, I I'm tempted to just go for some of the I don't want to call them low hanging fruit, but some of the people who are running for a president with like 400 followers on Twitter. But I, I feel like that I don't know if that counts to me. What's wild is that Doug Burgum really is the low hanging fruit. If you look at his Instagram, he has 9000 followers. If you double. um, So. My girlfriend's brother's girlfriend is a is an influencer. If you take her and two of her influencer friends together, they have twice as many followers as Doug Burgum. I think yeah, I was going to say I I've I went to high school with people who have bigger Instagram followings than that. Yeah, I mean, I think your average chick who who puts up the occasional sexy picture has more followers on Instagram than Doug Burgum. So, I mean, he's low hanging fruit. Hopefully we'll get them. Um, this is in no way a ringing endorsement of Doug Burgum's policies, but Doug, come on. I mean, it would only sure. help you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if Doug Burgum wants, I think a good strategy is he should just send gift cards to every single person he can find on the internet. And I feel like that could net him some more followers. Yeah. And we could even turn that into a promotion with our listeners. I just... Again, just to hammer home the point, I don't see what you have to lose, Doug Burgum. You only have something to gain by coming on a podcast where most episodes don't even break 100 listens. You know, I mean, like those are 60, 70 people who are going to hear you. 60, 70 potential Burgum voters right there. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, this is not like a guy who's going to get on the debate stage for debate three. So I don't know. I don't know. And as always, before we bring you this month's episode, you can find us on social media. On Facebook, you can search The Almost President's Podcast. On Instagram, The Almost President's Podcast. And on Twitter, at Almost Potus Pod. And you can always email us as well with any questions or comments. Our email is The Almost President's Podcast at gmail.com. So today we'll be diving into part six of a multi-part series on Samuel Tilden and the disastrous election of 1876. If you haven't checked out the other episodes in the series, 
and you want to go back and start at the beginning of the story, feel free to put this episode on pause and check those out. We'll be right here when you get back. As for the rest of you listeners out there, let's go ahead and get started. So today our story starts with an injured American officer named Thomas. It's November 1780, and America's been in the midst of a bloody revolution for five years at this point. In three more years, the conflict would come to its unexpected conclusion. The words of Lin-Manuel Miranda in Alexander Hamilton, the world would, quote, be turned upside down as 13 colonies with the support of the French, of course, would unite together to defeat the greatest fighting force on the planet, the British. But Thomas didn't know that at the time, as he was being carried off the battlefield in the midst of a fierce engagement against the British forces. What he did know was that he'd been shot. There was a musket ball lodged in his shoulder that would need the help of a surgeon to remove, and the process of extracting that ball must have been excruciatingly painful. One can only imagine. But this man was a patriot, and he was a patriot who was willing to lay down his life if he had to, for the cause of American freedom. And not only was Thomas an ardent patriot, but the stakes of the fight really couldn't be higher for him. Many alive at the time living in America could reasonably say that the revolt against Great Britain brought war to their doorsteps, but for Thomas it was quite literally the truth. The British had burned his South Carolina home to the ground, and this had made it so that Thomas wasn't just in it for the cause, the glory, the adventure of soldiering, and so on. No, Thomas was well and truly out for blood. The life he had staked out and worked so hard to maintain in South Carolina was under direct threat by foreign invaders. By the time the war ended, Thomas had fought with distinction in several important battles. He was even nicknamed the Carolina Gamecock for the sheer brutality of his fighting tactics, although Cornwallis referred to him simply as My Greatest Plague, which sounds like the name of a windy grunge band to me, but we'll go with it. Because the symbol of the fighting Gamecock is actually still alive and well in South Carolina. The Gamecock serves as the mascot for the University of South Carolina to this day, for any of you folks out there that follow college sports. But back to the original fighting Gamecock himself, when the war was over, Thomas would continue to serve his country and the state of South Carolina by serving in the newly formed U.S. Congress. And the old patriot even lived long enough to see the early stages of construction on a military fort in South Carolina that would bear his last name, which was Sumter. So perhaps you could say that It's ironic, then, that only 32 years later, the fort named after General Thomas Sumter would come under attack when America went to war with itself. So last episode, we concluded by talking about bleeding Kansas, which in many ways acted as a precursor to a conflict that would play out across a much bigger stage. Now that conflict was here. The issue of slavery had been kicked down the road by generations of Americans living before, during, and after the days of General Thomas Sumter was finally going to become an issue that could only be resolved through bloodshed. Pardon my metaphor here, but the Great Southern Secession Tour was fully underway. On December 20th, 1860, South Carolina seceded from the Union. In January of the next year, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana would follow suit. And come February, Texas would secede as well. Then in the spring and summer came Virginia, Arkansas, North Carolina, and Tennessee. But before the last state would even get the chance to secede, the former Democratic congressman from Mississippi, Jefferson Davis, would be unanimously elected as the first and last president of the Confederate States of America. This followed a meeting a few days earlier in February of 1861, where delegates from South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, and Louisiana met in Montgomery, Alabama. This meeting, of course, would not only result in the election of Jefferson Davis, but in the very formation of the Confederate States of America. This monumental historic event left certain contingents of federal troops hanging in the wind in a way that must have been precarious at best, and absolutely terrifying at worst. You see, the federal government still held military installations in the South, in these very states now proclaiming they were no longer a part of the United States. Among these was Fort Sumter in South Carolina, where events would transpire that would propel the country into full-scale war, as opposed to the sectional violence transpiring in places like Bleeding Kansas. But before we get back to the attack on Fort Sumter, I want to take us back a bit to the election of 1860. This election is fascinating in so many ways, but what's relevant to us is how the factionalism taking place within the Democratic Party played out and the South's swift almost immediate response to the victory of the newly formed Republican Party's candidate, Abraham Lincoln. 
While it's crazy to say the election of Lincoln alone was the final straw which broke the camel's back, it'd also be crazy to think straw was what was being loaded onto this camel's back all these years. Because this poor camel has been shouldering brick after brick for decades now. Usually looking at an election map can be relatively instructive about the broad strokes of which state sprung for which party and which candidate, where the red states are, where the blue states are, and possibly where the future swing states are. In the year 1860, not so much. While the map does serve as a nice visual to illustrate the fault lines taking shape between the north and the south, there's a bit more going on here that's worth getting into. Yes, it can be fairly stated that the election of 1860 was what established the Republican and Democratic parties as the dominant political parties in American politics. This just doesn't take into consideration how divided Democrats were in this election and how much this played into Lincoln and the Republicans' hands. The driving factor behind the division was, of course, slavery. It was an issue, actually it was the issue, that even if your opinion was just to have no opinion on it, that was still a pretty huge opinion, because it was slavery after all. Going back in time to 1848, as you recall, Samuel Tilden ventured into the Free Soil Party, whose stance on slavery was that it should not extend into the free territories. This stance made up essentially the entire platform of the third party. And not long after that, many of the anti-slavery Democrats who were involved with the Free Soil Party ended up joining the Republican Party, along with many of the Whigs. This included Tilden's lifelong friend and biographer, John Bigelow, who joined Tilden in the Free Soil days, but whose anti-slavery views led him to join the Republican Party in 1856, along with famous American poet and soon-to-be Lincoln fanboy, William Cullen Bryant. And I would say who isn't a Lincoln fanboy, but given what this episode is going to cover, we're about to meet a lot of people who aren't. But anyway, um, defection to the Republican Party couldn't be said to be the main concern facing the Democrats in the 1860 election. Their main concern was deciding on a candidate to run. And ultimately, this decision, which was made increasingly complicated by the slavery question, led to the nomination of multiple candidates, as well as another third party run. First, there were the Northern Democrats, believing states entering the Union should have the right to decide whether to be a slave state or free state, and they nominated a politician who embodied their position, Stephen A. Douglas. This belief, referred to as popular sovereignty, was what laid at the heart of bleeding Kansas. It was dangerous, and with the temperature being as high as it was in the country at that moment, things like popular sovereignty were really just not even feasible. And yet the Southern Democrats held an even more extreme view on slavery. They believed a person should have the freedom to own someone, thus stripping that individual of their freedom, wherever the hell they wanted to in the United States of America. And damn it if John C. Breckinridge wasn't the man to make that happen. And then there was a constitutional party whose entire platform was kind of as vague as the Ren is too damn high party's platform is specific. And if you get that reference, thank you so much for being here. So the Constitutional Union Party's position on slavery was simply to take no position on slavery. Oh, and they were also the party of law, you know, like in the Constitution stuff. And in 1860, they ran John Bell, a Tennessee slaveholder, as their party's standard bearer. The result of the election was Abraham Lincoln taking essentially the entire North and its slate of 180 electoral votes, with his closest competitor, at least in the popular vote, Stephen A. Douglas, managing to secure only 12 electoral votes. While Breckinridge, the Democratic candidate in the South, didn't get nearly as many votes in the popular vote as Douglas, he still managed to gain 72 electoral votes, while John Bell took 39 for the Constitutional Union Party. The end result, Abraham Lincoln's victory, wouldn't only serve as a death knell to the Union, but would be the beginning of a dominant string of presidential elections that would establish the new Republican Party as the big kid on the block. The next five, six if you include Andrew Johnson, U.S. presidents would be Republicans. The soon-to-be-divided country would be entering into a Republican dynasty in the executive branch that wouldn't be broken until the election of Grover Cleveland in 1885. But it would be a minute before a Republican president could relax and just catch his breath a bit after winning the nomination. In the space between Lincoln's November election as the next president and his arrival at his new home in the White House, seven southern states will have seceded from the Union. 
This was a disaster that many saw coming and feared greatly, and our almost president, Samuel Tilden, was no exception to this. Although he would stick by the president during the duration of the Civil War, Tilden viewed Lincoln's potential victory in the 1860 election as the deciding factor in whether or not the United States could be said to be united anymore. Tilden vehemently opposed the election of Lincoln, keeping the map of the 1860 election in mind again, Tilden, according to Bigelow, quote, by correspondence, did what he could to discourage the transfer of the federal government to the control of a geographical party. Meaning, in other words, that the South was going to be extremely pissed when a guy only the North voted for, who in some Southern states wasn't even on the ballot, was going to be in charge. Even though Tilden focused more on law than politics in the months leading up to the 1860 election, Tilden was open about the fact that, should Lincoln win, a civil war very well could ensue. John Bigelow, who was a Republican by this point, remembered how fired up Tilden would get about how disastrous it would be if Lincoln won. There's a particularly memorable incident involving Tilden that occurred in the days leading up to Lincoln's victory, when it was starting to become clear that he might win. Bigelow writes, quote, Only a few days before the election of Mr. Lincoln, and when his partisans were confident of success, Mr. Tilden came into the editorial rooms of the Evening Post looking very haggard and preoccupied. Hiram Barney, William H. Osborne, and John A. C. Gray, all Republicans and intimate friends who chanced to be there at the same time, began to chaff him about the political situation. He listened for a time without relaxing in the slightest degree the sternness of his expression or uttering a word. Presently, as if suddenly filled with the spirit of prophecy, and in a tone of intense emotion, he exclaimed, I would not have the responsibility of William Cullen Bryant and John Bigelow for all the wealth in the sub-treasury. If you have your way, civil war will divide this country, and you will see blood running like water in the streets of this city. Having uttered these words, he rose and left the office. Ten or fifteen minutes later, Andrew H. Green, who had a desk in Mr. Tilden's office, called and asked me if Mr. Tilden was not there. I said he had just left, and then lowering my voice to Mr. Green, I said, You had better look Tilden up at once and get him home. He is very much excited. Much as it would have grieved me, it would not have surprised me had I heard any time within ten days or ten hours that he was a raving lunatic. Fortunately, Tilden emerged from his seemingly righteous fit, with his wits and intellect intact. He would surely need them in the tumultuous months and years to come. Another incident involving Tilden recounted by Bigelow gives us a clear view of his stance on southern states seceding from the Union. It was at a dinner he attended in 1860 along with some guests from the South. And of course, even when Tilden wasn't behind a rostrum or at an important meeting of the Democratic Party, politics were always in the forefront of his mind. He was overheard telling one of the guests at a dinner, a man from the South, that, quote, if the Southern states persisted in their attempt to secede, they must not expect the Northern Democrats to hold the government while they were whipping it. He went on to say that, quote, Peaceful separation was an illusion, that the questions in controversy would be rendered infinitely more difficult by separation, and new ones still more difficult would be created. That if the antagonized parties could not agree upon peace within the Union, they certainly would not have peace without the Union. They never could agree upon terms of separation, nor could they agree upon the relations to subsist between them after the separation, and, however lamentable might be the consequences, force could be the only arbiter of their differences." And as we know, Tilden was basically exactly right. On April 12, 1861, at 4.30 a.m., Fort Sumter, a federally occupied military installation in South Carolina, was attacked by Confederate forces led by General Beauregard. The federal troops inside, under the leadership of Major Robert Anderson, attempted to fight back, but they were outnumbered, outgunned, and undersupplied. The first engagement of the American Civil War would result in federal troops turning Fort Sumter over to the rebels the afternoon of the following day. Despite all the firepower, only one man was killed and one injured when a 100-gun salute conducted by the Union upon surrendering the fort went wrong. Federal Private Daniel Ho would be the first of many who would die before this conflict was over. Back in New York City, in the wake of the attack on Fort Sumter, Tilden, unlike many members of his party, especially obviously Southern Democrats, although finding fault with many of Lincoln's policies and decisions regarding how he conducted and financed the war, had decided that he would remain loyal to the Union. Unlike many, 
he viewed the war in the early days as what would come to be a long, drawn-out conflict that would require much more soldiers than Lincoln was calling for. He even met with the newly appointed Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, on multiple occasions to make his logistical position on the North's war-making capabilities known to Stanton himself. At these meetings, he broke things down for Stanton with a surprising degree of knowledge for a man whose health and expertise far removed him from possessing a deep knowledge of mid-19th century military grand strategy. At the first meeting, for example, he broke some important things down for Stanton. And as much as I want you to take in the whole quote, we're definitely going to elaborate on what he tells Stanton right out the gate. Tilton said, quote, You have no right to expect a great military genius to come to your assistance. The whole human race have been able to furnish such men only once in a century or two. You can only count on an average military talent. You have three times the available population and perhaps nine times the industrial resources of your antagonist. You have an immense advantage in the superior capacity of your railways to move men and supplies. What you have to do is make your advantages available, concentrate your forces, and organize ample reserves to be ready to precipitate them on critical points. In the probable absence of military genius, you must rely on overwhelming numbers, wisely concentrated. In many ways, Tilden broke down what elements the North had that the South didn't, which would inevitably lead to Union victory over the Confederacy. The North had more men, more industrial might, more maneuverability when it came to supplying their men. All they needed was solid leadership, which Tilden seemed to think was sorely missing among West Point's best and brightest, or at least those that remained loyal to the Union. In this aspect, many historians would argue Samuel Tilden was sorely mistaken. At this point in our episode, if we were shooting a drama, we might say something along the lines of, enter into the scene, General Ulysses S. Grant. But that wasn't something that happened right away. There would be a lot of drama, a lot of death, a lot of flip-flopping of generals in the eastern theater of the war before Grant, the guy who, with his tight-knit group of generals and advisors, would swoop in and bring the war to its gruesome conclusion. And out of this war, as we talked about in the first three episodes of this season of the podcast, would emerge the men, the survivors of the war on both sides, who would go on to attempt to bring the country back together after it was all over. But for many of these men, two in particular that are going to play important roles in our story, the war wasn't only something gruesome, horrifying, tragic, and unforgettable that they were fortunate enough to survive. It was what made them into who they would become. And if it wasn't for the war, we might not even know their names. As a matter of fact, we can definitely say, in the case of one of them, that without the Civil War, this man undoubtedly would not have gone on to become a president of the United States. In terms of their future political and presidential career, the Civil War just might have been the best thing that happened to both of them, and they would even both go on to say as much themselves. And I'm referring, of course, to two future presidents here, Ulysses S. Grant and Rutherford B. Hayes. So let's take the chance to get to know these two guys a bit, who they were before the war, what they achieved during the war, and how they fought it. Starting with Rutherford B. Hayes, who would go on to oppose almost President Samuel Tilden in the election of 1876, the focal point of our season. Hayes, just like Grant, was born in Ohio. He was born into a family plagued by tragedy. His father died before he was born, and in addition to that, of his four siblings, only he and his sister Fanny would survive to adulthood. The death of a father that he'd never met thrust Hayes into the position of being the man of the house at quite a young age, long before he was a man, or even a boy for that matter. But Hayes was a man of tremendous drive and ambition. His limitless drive was even the main cause of several nervous breakdowns he suffered throughout his life from just pushing himself too hard. Hayes, like Tilden, would study law, opening his own practice in Cincinnati once he'd finished with his studies. As a lawyer, Hayes put himself under the radar of the newly formed Republican Party by defending escaped slaves who were being prosecuted under the Fugitive Slave Act. This led to him being nominated to fill a vacant city solicitor position in Cincinnati. He won by one vote, which is where many say his string of good fortune began. Unfortunately, however, when it came to this particular post, Hayes was unable to enjoy this luck for long. His enthusiasm and willingness to campaign for fellow Republican Abraham Lincoln in the 1860 election led to his ouster when Democrats and Know-Nothing Party members banded together to remove Republican officeholders, afraid that they supported war with the South. And when it came to Hayes, at least, this was true. It was the attack on Fort Sumter that gave him 
no military experience notwithstanding, reason to join the Burnout Rifles, a local militia unit of which he was made captain. Rutherford B. Hayes loved life in the military. Later in life, he'd refer to the Civil War as his, quote, golden years, quote, the best years of our lives, and would later go on to brag to his political advantage that he was, quote, one of the good colonels in the great army. Author Roy Morris Jr. writes that in June of 1861, Hayes was appointed major of the 23rd Ohio, benefiting from his connections with the state's governor, William Dennison. It wouldn't be long before the man of law, the Republican politician, would be leading men into war. And just as a quick aside, while I think we've made it clear that Kevin and I aren't super intrigued by the Civil War as a conflict, Kevin is not really someone who's very interested in military history, and me being someone who's interested in military history, this isn't really a war that I find super interesting. We are intrigued by a certain specific facet of it that I think should be talked about a lot more. And that is the awesome facial hair of the Civil War. Um, Kevin and I have been awed by this facial hair for years. So I know this is an audio medium, but we will post pictures to our social media so that you can look on as we're talking about it. Kevin, I have a picture here that you're looking at as well of a young Rutherford B. Hayes in his union uniform, and more importantly, his beard. So on a scale of, man, if, if I had to create a scale, I'd probably say a scale of one to Longstreet. Um, but that's maybe my bias showing through Longstreet probably has my favorite beard of the war. If we're yeah, I was just say, I disagree with the framing right up front, but we can go ahead without, you know, disputing that. Yes. Okay. So we'll have to go back and forth about that. But if we're just looking at beards, like, like we're not talking about mustaches or mutton chops here. We're looking at Rutherford B. Hayes. He's got a beard. How would you rate this beard? If, if we're, if we're just going beards, maybe one to Longstreet. Um, or whatever metric we want to talk about, to, uh, one being the lowest, 10 being the highest. How do, you, how do you feel about this? Yeah, so I'm just going to go ahead and give this one an eight. Oh, um, wow. It just right really... Up, right out the gate. I mean, I mean, I think it just does everything well. Like, I think a lot of people have a hard time. If you've ever actually had a beard, if you have a beard of that length, there a lot of work goes into it. And just to keep something like sort of strong, powerful, but simple like that, and not go crazy, not have all these weird twists and turns in the mustache or or have it like, you know, filed into a point, just simple, straightforward. To me, there's nothing better, nothing more masculine and, uh, you know, nothing better in a beard than that. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at this beard and I, I would say I'm not seeing anything that is especially standout, but this is a great beard. I mean, I'm looking at this thing. I mean, you could comb this thing. You could hide things in it. You could store rations, you know, extra rations. Um, That's the thing. I, it doesn't have the bells and whistles, but it doesn't need them. You like know? I see a lot of utilitarian value in this. I also see that he, he doesn't quite have that perfect Kennedy head of hair that we've been used to talking about for a year and change. Um, so I think it's yeah. good that he he found ways to reappropriate the hair that he lost on his head to putting it on his face. Um, yeah, so I, I, th I think this is a great beard in this picture. It looks well-maintained and I think I would follow, um, this beard into war. I I'm not sure about the, I, I mean, I, I might maybe go like, I don't want to break out the decimals on the first beard, but like maybe, uh, maybe like a seven, I, I might go one lower than you, but this is still a great beard. That's fair. That's fair. And Rutherford B. Hayes, I mean, this guy's going to go on to have many different iterations of his. I mean, this, you know, might, might as well be Rutherford Beard Hayes, you know, like he's going to go on to have presidential beards. So this is just this is just an early beard. But as we know, this was the golden age of of beards. So that you, you had beards, to really like knock it all out of sorts the of facially. Yeah. The bar was high. So anyways, for Ulysses S. Grant, his initial involvement in the Civil War began on quite different terms. For some quick background on Grant, unlike Hayes, Grant was a career military man, although at this point in time, the operative word is was. He attended West Point and graduated 21st out of his class of 39. I don't know how good you guys are at math, but that's not very high up in the rankings. He had fought and served heroically in the Mexican-American War, but at the time that the Civil War was starting to take shape in America, Grant had hit a rut in his life. During peacetime, Grant was assigned to Fort Humboldt in California, where he was separated from his family, a source of great support and happiness in his life. Being away from them and in a miserable post, 
Grant's depression and peacetime idleness led him to the bottle. This got rolling the specter of alcoholism which would follow Grant for the remainder of his life. He ended up resigning from the army in 1854 and returned home to his family and life as a civilian. He would spend the next several years plagued by financial struggles. And by 1860, the only consistent thing in his life, it seemed, was a struggle to provide for himself and his family. Ever since leaving the military, a series of farming and business ventures only netted failure and financial strife for a grant. In April of that year, he had moved with his family to Galena, Illinois, to work as a store clerk in a leather shop. When Fort Sumter was attacked and war broke out, Grant, when asked about whether he planned to rejoin the army and join the fight, said that, having received his education at the expense of the government, it was entitled to his services. And so, with the help of a friendly congressman, Elihu Washburn, pulling some strings, Grant rejoined the army, was put in command of the 21st Illinois Volunteer Infantry Regiment, where he began getting his mojo back, and prepared himself and his men for war. Now, before moving on, like we said before, not into the war, love the facial hair though, I have a picture of an early Civil War era U.S. Grant beard. Haven't agreed on our metrics, so I won't say scale of one to Longstreet, but scale of one to ten, uh, where are we ranking this thing? This is a young Grant returning to war. What do you make of this uh, this facial art here? I'm going to go ahead and give this one a four. Wow. I don't know what he's... <laughs> I don't know what he's doing with that, like with the ends of his beard like that. And it, it almost like forming them into like a box. It, it's just bizarre. It doesn't work. Th- this is kind of why I ranked the Rutherford B. Hayes beard so highly. Go for something old and classic. And if you're going to deviate from the old classic styles, you really got to knock it out of the park. And this just does not knock it out of the park. So I, I got to give it, you know, pretty low ranking. So I'm going to go with a four. Yeah, I mean, you're more of a math guy than me, but I'm looking at the corners of this beard too. It almost seems like he told his barber, look, I don't want the corners of my beard to be an acute or obtuse angle. Make them a 90 degree angle. That's what my men need to see. They need to see a 90 degree angle. They they need to see just uniformity. And uh, he looks like he's got two acute angles. So his barber didn't even get it right. I just think that if this is the guy that goes on to proclaim himself as unconditional surrender grant, I'm just kind of thinking like, man, I surrendered to that beard. You know, that's, that's rough. Yeah. So I don't know if he was riding into battle, like, like check this thing out. Like I'm going to whip you with this beard. Like that's just how bad I am. But I look at the beard of, of grant later in the war and as a president, and I look at this and I just think to myself, man, like you, you could do so much better than this. And I'm glad that he does, but I'm going to put my ranking at a four as well. This is a pretty rough. Beard. Yeah, I, I think maybe what's going on here is when you're younger, you experiment with all this weird and like interesting, I guess, quote unquote, like fashion and, you know, do all these really experimental things. And then you get older and that you realize that you're an adult. And so you start actually trying to look presentable. And so, you know, he did this when he was, you know, his young freewheeling self, even though I don't think he was all that young. He, he wasn't even super um, young with this. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> but, but then he got older and he became president. He was like, all right, I'm going to actually have like a serious beard. He cut it and if decided can, to look. Actually if decent. I can throw something else your way, I don't know if this is kind of helping him or hurting him or just kind of causing us to look and be distracted by something that isn't the beard. Is the goofy hat also kind of lowering? I know they dress for war a little bit differently, and he is probably dressed like, well, of course he's dressed like an officer, like a higher ranking officer as he was, but uh, is the goofy hat kind of making you cast a little bit judgment on what's beneath the goofy hat? Because I think it might a little bit for me, at least subconsciously. You know, it's hard to tell, but I It's a goofy fucking hat. I personally don't think so. Okay, And I think if anything, I think it actually would make it worse if he took the hat off simply because at least with the goofy hat, there's this context of like, oh, this is a goofy looking dude. Whereas if he took the hat off, he would be a normal guy wearing that ridiculous beard. And so it would make things a lot worse. Okay. I'm really fucking roasting (laughs) Ulysses S. Grant here, but that's my that's my take. Yeah, I mean, look. I mean, it's how much can you separate the beard from the man? 
I mean, we, we just have to, we have to judge the beard that we're looking at and this is the beard that we're looking at and it sucks. I I love Grant, but that beard sucks. So I mean, these are probably the most important segments of this episode. So if if you do want to turn it off now, we are done talking about beards, but if you did want to continue listening, we'll return now to Rutherford B. Hayes. So similar to many soldiers on both sides of the conflict, Hayes spent the first year of the war kind of boyishly romanticizing the glory and adventure of soldiering. In his book, Fraud of the Century, historian Roy Morris Jr. sums this up nicely. Quote, Hayes in the 23rd Ohio spent the first year of the war fighting guerrillas in West Virginia. It was thankless, often dangerous work, redeemed somewhat by the beautiful natural surroundings. And here's Hayes um, within the quote, quote, our men enjoyed it beyond measure, Hayes told Lucy, his wife. Many had never seen a mountain. We are a grown-up armed Blackberry party, which almost sounds like a camping trip. A young enlistee serving in the 9th Indiana Infantry also saw action in West Virginia, but he offered a much more sobering perspective on the brutality of war, remembering, quote, a herd of wild pigs eating the faces off a pile of dead bodies, and a fellow soldier named Abbott, who was killed by a stray cannonball bearing the foundry imprint, Abbott, that rolled down the mountainside and struck him in the side while he was sleeping. The enlistee's name was Ambrose Bierce, and the horror he recounted was just the beginning for him and countless other Union and Confederate troops. After the war, Bierce would go on to become a prominent writer, not only recording his experiences during the war, but writing fictional stories about the Civil War, such as the short story An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, which was actually adapted many years later for an episode of The Twilight Zone. On a side note, Bierce is a really interesting writer and man. So much of his writing can definitely be categorized in the fantasy genre, but there are also works within his bibliography that could safely be seen as almost like proto-science fiction, which would make Bierce one of the early American writers of science fiction. Although, of course, the genre really entered onto the global scene with a bang back when Mary Shelley published Frankenstein, which was back in 1818. In 1913, at the age of 71, Ambrose Bierce disappeared when he left D.C. to tour Civil War battlefields that he had fought on. And aside from a cryptic goodbye message in one of his letters, while there are many theories that we won't get into on this podcast, the final fate of Ambrose Bierce remains an unresolved mystery to this day. I think there's even an Ancient Aliens episode where they speculate as to what might have happened to him. But leaving that literary flight of fancy behind and returning to Hayes in his 23rd Ohio, While the year 1862 would be an incredibly bloody year for America, it would also be a bloody year for Hayes personally. In the spring of 1862, he took enemy shrapnel to the knee during a skirmish in Virginia. In the summer of that year, Hayes was shot in the arm, and the bullet did real damage, shattering bone in his upper arm and leaving him with bruised ribs. The incident where this happened took place in southern Maryland, only three days before the bloodiest battle of the American Civil War. The Battle of Antietam took place. Showing a mix of heroism and extreme tolerance of pain, Hayes continued issuing orders to his regiment before receiving treatment for his injuries. Hayes would go on to take part in plenty of other battles in the Shenandoah Valley Campaign, where he served as a colonel under General Crook. His aforementioned luck was nearly pushed to his limits when, at the Battle of Cedar Creek, he had his horse shot out from under him took a Confederate bullet to the head, but fortunately for him, the bullet had lost most of its lethal speed and managed to avoid getting captured or hit again by the many bullets that were whizzing all around him after this uh, bullet had, I guess, gave him a little love tap on the noggin. And for his heroics on the battlefield, Hayes received a promotion to Brigadier General. More importantly, in terms of American history, though perhaps not to him at the time, was his nomination to Congress by his Republican buddies back in Ohio. He accepted the nomination, but not their suggestion to go on furlough from the army in order to campaign. According to WhiteHouse.gov's profile of Rutherford B. Hayes, his response to their suggestion was, quote, an officer fit for duty who at this crisis would abandon his post to electioneer for a seat in Congress ought to be scalped. You may feel perfectly sure I will do no such thing. While just based on his courage on the battlefield alone, this quote may accurately reflect what Hayes was thinking and feeling at the time, 
It also served as a great bit of political theater that would benefit him politically. By saying he had no interest in politicking while fighting for his country, he was embodying traits that voters clearly wanted to see in their next congressman. Hayes ultimately won a seat in Congress. He left the army in the summer of 1865, seeing the Civil War through to its end, and joined Congress's winter session in December 1865, where Reconstruction was about to begin. Hayes joined up with the war effort early on in the conflict and came out on the other side a battle-hardened U.S. congressman. One can only speculate as to whether or not he could have begun his political ascent that would eventually put him in the White House without his distinguished service record in the Civil War. And if an argument can be made for the Civil War shaping and positioning Rutherford B. Hayes for future political success, with Grant, there almost isn't even an argument to be had. The Civil War brought Grant out of the shadows of historical obscurity and forged him into one of Lincoln's most trusted generals and an American war hero, at least to the Americans on the winning side. But before any of that could happen, Grant had to make a name for himself out in the western front of the war. You see, while Lincoln was struggling to find competent leadership for his Army of the Potomac, and Lee's Army of Northern Virginia seemed to be outfoxing federal troops at every turn, Grant began handling the Northern victories in the Western theater of the war, thus returning hope and pride in the Northern cause. With the seizing of Confederate forts, Henry and Donelson, while incurring 3,000 men killed or wounded to 16,000 killed or wounded on the enemy side, and offering no terms to the enemy but unconditional surrender, Grant earned himself the nickname Unconditional Surrender Grant, a play on his first two initials, U.S., But more importantly, it earned him a promotion from Abraham Lincoln and put him on the president's radar. After taking forts Henry and Donelson, Grant and his men underwent two days of brutal fighting in Shiloh, Tennessee, where a lack of preparedness among Union forces opened them up to a Confederate surprise attack. In one of the war's ironies, Shiloh, meaning in Hebrew, a place of peace, was the site of 13,047 Union casualties and 10,669 Confederate casualties. Confederate General Alfred Sidney Johnson, not to be confused with Confederate General Joseph Johnston, was shot in the knee during the fight. The wound severed an artery in his leg, and he wound up bleeding to death. Jefferson Davis viewed this loss as a tremendous blow to the leadership of the Confederate military, writing, quote, When Sidney Johnston fell, it was the turning point of our fate, for we had no other hand to take up his work in the West. The fact that Grant had allowed him and his men to be taken totally by surprise, having not even dug trenches and installed the most basic of defense fortifications, would serve as a blemish on Grant's military career. On a basic level, it showed two things. First, Grant had allowed himself to grow arrogant in the wake of taking Forts Henry and Donelson. And second, that Grant and his allies, men like General William Tecumseh Sherman, viewed themselves as the invading force the ones who'd be consistently on offense, leaving the enemy to guess what their next move was, and not the other way around. The sentiment is well encapsulated in a quote from Sherman in the wake of Shiloh, where he said, I always acted on the supposition that we were an invading army. We did not fortify our army against an attack, because we had no orders to do so, and because such a course would have made our men timid. And yet, despite the scourging Grant would undergo in the northern press for Shiloh, It was this willingness that Grant had to bring the fight to the enemy that so much endeared him to Abraham Lincoln, who was having his own problems finding competent leadership for the Army of the Potomac back east. When Grant was taking a beating in the wake of Shiloh, when people in military press and public alike wanted him removed from his post, Lincoln stood by him, saying, I can't spare this man. He fights. In the spring of 1863, Grant was involved in one of the most important fights to occur in the Western theater of the war as the Battle of Gettysburg marked a key turning point in the East, the Battle of Vicksburg served as a turning point in the West. Vicksburg was a town of tremendous strategic importance to the South. Sitting along the Mississippi River, Vicksburg served as an important location for the flow of goods, supplies, and weaponry from Confederate states in the West to Confederate states in the East. With the capture of other key forts along the Mississippi, Vicksburg served as one of the last major ways for Confederate goods to travel between East and West. Were the North to capture it, the Confederacy would effectively be split in half, and the North would have control over the Mississippi River. Leaders from both sides view the heavily fortified city as having tremendous strategic value to the war. 
Jefferson Davis viewed it as the, quote, nailhead that holds the South's two halves together, unquote. Abraham Lincoln viewed Vicksburg as, quote, the key. The war can never be brought to a close until that key is in our pocket, unquote. But the battle itself and the subsequent 47-day siege of Vicksburg is where we really get a chance to see the human cost of the war up close. Because while Vicksburg held tremendous strategic value for both sides, which resulted in the drawn-out military campaign by the Union to take it, as well as the desperate efforts of the Confederates to hold it, what happened to the soldiers and civilians living under siege in Vicksburg was nothing short of horrifying. Historian Ron Chernow recounts what it was like inside the besieged city. Quote, Hunger had yielded to starvation, as dogs, cats, and even rats vanished from the city. Soldiers accustomed to beef and bacon settled for leathery mule meat, supplemented by small portions of rice, corn, and peas. Many contracted scurvy, and by late June, half the garrison was laid low by illness. End quote. The lack of foodstuff even led some civilians to turn to shoe leather for meager sustenance. And if this wasn't bad enough, the city was under constant bombardment from Union heavy artillery and gunboats, which hurled over 20,000 shells into the city in an attempt to force Confederate General Pemberton to surrender and hand Vicksburg over to Union forces. The bombardment of the city by Union guns destroyed businesses, homes, and much of the city's infrastructure. More immediately, it made navigating the once familiar city streets incredibly dangerous. In response, the civilian population abandoned their destroyed homes and began burrowing into the hillsides for safety. Ron Chernow writes, quote, Although bombarding civilian populations would be commonplace in future conflicts, it still arose as a dreadful novelty in the Civil War. Fleeing nonstop shelling, Vicksburg residents sought shelter in cellars or man-made caves carved out of the hillsides. People spent so much time in these improvised bunkers that they furnished them with carpets, beds, and easy chairs until they resembled rude apartments. And then there's a quote within the quote, Caves were the fashion, the rage over besieged Vicksburg, recorded a survivor. Nighttime bombardments made these cave dwellers shrink in terror as they listened to the shrieking whistle of diving shells. And another Vicksburg resident uh, writes, quote, Morning found us more dead than alive, with blanched faces and trembling lips, wrote one young woman, end quote. Confederate General Pemberton facing severe food shortages and morale so low that it verged on full-blown mutiny within the ranks of his forces, surrendered to Grant on July 4, 1863. The way this surrender and the events that followed went down marked a change in Grant's treatment of his enemy after achieving a great victory. Whereas at Forts Henry and Donelson, he gained a reputation for stopping at nothing but unconditional surrender. The same Grant may have entered the peace talks with that mentality, but the end result might remind you of the grant we met at the start of this series at Appomattox Courthouse. It seemed that, in some ways, Grant was thinking of the bigger picture when working to arrive at surrender terms that he deemed appropriate and fair. This is well encapsulated in something he wrote not long after, in 1884, about the army he had just defeated at Vicksburg. He wrote, quote, The men had behaved so well that I did not want to humiliate them. I believe that consideration for their feelings would make them less dangerous foes during the continuance of hostilities and better citizens after the war was over, unquote. Grant knew that while there were still many battles to fight before the war could be brought to its conclusion, the capture of Vicksburg was a major turning point in the war, and some thought should be given to the kind of impression his victorious army wanted to leave on the defeated army who, in time, would be absorbed back into the Union. Of course, the surrender terms at Vicksburg and Appomattox should also be factored in with the sheer brutality of Sherman's March to Sea, which, as Lieutenant General, Grant would sign off on and support as a means to bring the war to a swift conclusion. But in a sense, this just goes to show that while Grant could be magnanimous to the enemy, he first had to defeat them in bloody battle. He was, after all, first and foremost, a soldier. So, after fighting a series of battles, living in deplorable conditions with little in the way of food and supplies, and enduring the noise, death, and horror accompanied with constant demoralizing artillery bombardment, here's the terms Pemberton agreed to that put an end to the 47-day siege and the 18th-month Vicksburg campaign. 
Grant granted parole to the former defenders of Vicksburg. The generosity of these terms also had a strategic purpose as well, as opposed to taking on the burden of having to feed and transport 30,000 prisoners to Union prisoner of war camps, he opted to use the machinery of his army for continuing the war as opposed to gumming up the works with so many POWs. This had the added effect, he hoped, of enabling these men to return home, bringing the stench of defeat with them, dealing the Confederate army a major morale blow. Even though the Western Front of the Civil War received significantly less press coverage than the Eastern Front, Grant's victory at Vicksburg brought him significant attention and made him Lincoln's prized general for the remainder of the war. And eventually, Lincoln would bring the all-star general from the Western Front to the Eastern Front, where much more attention was paid and where Grant would fight until the war's ultimate conclusion. Ulysses S. Grant had gone from a place of obscurity to holding the highest rank in the U.S. military, that of Lieutenant General, commander of all Union forces. The rank had only ever been bestowed on one other general, who you may have heard of at one point or another, George Washington. Grant used his rank in close relationships with key allies like Sherman, who took over in the western theater of the war when Grant moved east, Sheridan, his dependable cavalry officer, Meade, among others, to coordinate Union offensives on multiple fronts in the war. This created constant pressure on the Confederate war machine, and led to its piecemeal destruction at the hands of the Union army. By the end of the Civil War, Grant was so popular in the North that it seemed an almost guarantee that he would become president one day. As for Rutherford B. Hayes, he left behind a budding political career to fight the Civil War and emerged from the smoke and death of war, a U.S. congressman who would go on to become the two-term governor of Ohio. And, of course, a future Republican rival to Democratic presidential candidate and almost president Samuel Tilden. Next time on the Almost President's podcast, now that we've fleshed out the rise of Ulysses S. Grant and Rutherford B. Hayes and dug a bit into the horrors of the American Civil War, it's time to return to New York and the political rise of Samuel Tilden. With the war at an end and political corruption abound, how will Tilden respond to corruption going on within his own party? And how will this response to corruption in party politics and government put Tilden on the map nationally for Democrats looking for an answer to corrupt Republican practices in Washington? All this and more on the next episode of the Almost President's Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoyed the show. All right, and so we've reached that point in the podcast where Kevin and I recommend books that aren't necessarily related to the books that we take on in order to research and write the podcast, but are still just things that we're interested in that perhaps you'd be interested in as well. So what are you reading this month, Kevin? So somebody turned me on to this old uh, scholar of comparative religion named R.C. Zayner, and it seemed really interesting from you know stuff that I was reading. So I tried to find some books on Amazon, and he's one of those guys where the books are just stupid expensive, like $50 plus. And I was like, I'm on a budget. I'm not going to buy you know expensive books that I don't really need anyway. But I found one of his that was really cheap. It's just a it's a book about Hinduism. It's just called Hinduism. And yeah, so I I just was like, okay, let me pick it up and read it. I will say, I think my one mistake was to think that I could just buy a book about Hinduism and like kind of get it. Hinduism is just so big. And so the history is so long. The religion has been around for so long that it really just feels like this book is just him explaining all of the lore in like great detail, even though it's, it's relatively short, it's under 200 pages, but it is like a lot to get your head around. But I do think it, it brings a little bit of clarity, especially, you know, it covers some of the differences between Hinduism and Western conceptions of religion, which are obviously very, very different worlds apart. Even the, the very concept of a religion is quite different uh, in under Hinduism. And yeah, so that's kind of what I've been reading. I've almost, I'm almost finished with it. And I probably will not. I like, I wish, I think if I could do it over, I would have bought this at a time when I was doing like a deep dive on Hinduism, but I'm not going to do that because <laughs> I just don't have that kind of time. And so I feel like I, I've only kind of scratched the surface. And, um, but it, you know, it's interesting for sure. So just out of curiosity, are the books really expensive because they're not widely in circulation or? Is it kind of like that college textbook thing? 
or they're just I think it's a little bit of both. Reason. Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, they're not college textbooks, so it's not it's not like buying like a big thick hardcover, but it is like they are read in academic circles, I think. But it also is just that he's he's he was writing in like the sixties or something. Okay, and I don't think that that many of the books are in circulation. And then just on a content related note, I find Eastern religions fascinating in, in many ways, yeah. so much more so than Western religions. I do too. The only thing that's tricky is it feels like so much in Western religions or sorry. In, yeah. And in, in Western religions is meant to be captured by a text. And so it's very easy to grasp it because you can just read the text. And then, you know, obviously there's more to it than that, right? You would need to like read interpretations of it from like leading theologians or whatever. But in Eastern religions, so much of it is carried on from like teacher to student that I I feel like when I read about it, I don't I don't get a full picture because the actual religion is so individualized in each teacher student kind of relationship. Interesting. Well, I know that the guys at Ancient Aliens have a lot of fun with Hinduism. Yeah, I mean, definitely like I will say of all of the mythologies out there. I think like the Hindu mythology is the coolest. Like just the characters are so interesting. I was at a art museum a couple, like two or three weeks ago and I was walking through and looking at all like their Eastern art and like the art around Ganesh, like the giant elephant God of destruction. And just like the imagery is just so cool. Yeah, def- I definitely have uh, a lot that I could learn about Hinduism. Buddhism is one that I definitely want to read too, but I this isn't to say that Western religions don't have meditative practices about them, because I think there is a lot about prayer that is inherently meditative, but just the connections that Hinduism and Buddhism have to different forms of meditation and mindfulness and things like that, I think are just so interesting and their their lifestyles. And I know that a Christian would say that their religion is a lifestyle choice, and sure, they would be correct, but just in the practices of mind and body and and breathing and things like that. It's yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I tend to think of religions as being very good ways to carry down practices that don't make sense. If you don't know like a super deep understanding of like the brain or whatever. And I think, you know, there were a lot of things that when we didn't understand the science religion carried down certain practices And then the science became clear later and it became clear that we clean ourselves not to be clean before God, but to kill bacteria that will make us sick. And I think Buddhism in particular, at least from a very precursory understanding, it seems to have gotten so much right about the brain and about psychology that, yeah, like the practices that they have come up with, they really have been taken on from what I can tell by a lot of like psychologists as like, okay, you should do this to make yourself happier and like more stable as a person. And that's neat. Unfortunately, I guess it took a little bit longer when it comes to mental health. I mean, they were still performing exorcisms into the, what, the 60s. Yeah. I mean, I know that the Catholic church is a lot more cautious with that now as they should be, but you just wonder how many people just got lost who were just purely mentally ill and uh, whether through outside forces kind of dictating uh, their behavior or what have you just wound up um, just being like tied up and screamed at when they shouldn't have been. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was a huge piece that was missing from, I don't, you know, I don't know how much stock I put in like the Western Eastern distinctions, but from like, yeah, like the European world, the Christianized world, that was a huge gap that we had for a very long time. And to be fair, Eastern religions had their gaps too, and they still do. So it's not a one side or the other thing. Anyways, what are you reading this month? So I'm always reading a bunch of things, but what I've been trying to get through, it's it's always a lot to digest. It's very thorough, even though its subject is a very slippery figure historically. I'm reading The Revolutionary Samuel Adams by Stacey Schiff. And just first of all, from a tactile perspective, it's worth it paying the extra buck for the physical copy of this book in hardcover because it's just, it's so beautiful. Um, the cover is gorgeous. You have a picture of Sam Adams face, you know, the, the revolutionary and bold. And when you open the book, it's really neat because you get this like 
mid to late 18th century map of like the Boston Harbor, I believe, with British troops marching on the docks and British ships there and stuff like that. Because, of course, Boston, they were big troublemakers there during the lead up to the revolution. But then as far as the the content of the book, I mean, I think it's one of the first real like major stabs at trying to paint a biographical picture of this guy because he just, he was very like, he was involved in everything, but you can never directly connect him to anything. When it comes to things like protesting the Stamp Act and the, the, the mobs and the ways that they intimidated people, like he managed to like publish all these things anonymously in, in newspapers or he put his name to them or he got other people to publish them. Then he was also involved in the, the, uh, the state legislature. So like he had power over the press as well as the, the, the legislature. So he's just a really interesting guy. And I've never read history through the lens of a propagandist like him who kind of worked in the shadows, but was so effective at what he did that a lot of what led up to the revolution would, you, know, you could attribute to starting in, in Boston with him. I also didn't realize how famous he was in his day um, when John Adams even went to France to work with Ben Franklin as uh, ambassador. I believe he had to clarify that, hey, you know, I'm I'm the less famous Adams. I, I'm John, not Samuel. You know, sorry, I'm not sure who you thought you were getting. So I, I just assumed that John Adams is the famous one. I mean, I knew Sam Adams was big in his time, but he's really interesting, and I guess. I guess he's the guy who, to go to, into video games real quick, as we do often, um, in the third Assassin's Creed game, just in all the Assassin's Creed games, they try to have a historical figure who's highly linked to the secret of assassins, and he'll be kind of your tutorial character who will walk you through and teach you how to navigate things as far as like how to kill someone and hide, how to rip down wanted posters to lower the amount of notoriety you have among the guards. And Sam Adams is the one to teach you all that in the Revolutionary War Assassin's Creed. And to me, reading this book, it only lines up more and more perfectly. I remember reading a bit about him. He is he is super interesting. He reminds me of, or at least because I guess this may have changed. What I read about was like the revolutionary era, the revolutionary war era. And during that period of time, he really reminds me of everything that certain people hate about activists <laughs> is he was this very intense, like firebrand organizer figure who after a big event, like after uh, I believe there was like a, a guy who got shot. And, and after that, there was like a, big protest that he organized. And then following that was the Boston massacre was like the tensions or whatever that came out of that. And yeah, he really was just like such a intense, like militant guy and such an effective organizer of people. And yeah, there's this weird sense in which even though he was massively famous in his day, it, it, he just doesn't pop up as much as like, even like Thomas Paine or something as being a big figure amongst like the founders kind of. Yeah. And, I would definitely count Samuel Adams among the founders. But I guess when it comes to Thomas Paine, he was, and this rhymes, he was vain in his own way. He definitely wanted to be remembered by history. Sam Adams probably did, but he also burned much of his correspondence. And when they, he became governor of Massachusetts, I guess, later in his life. And when like they wanted to have this opulent reception and everything and ride him there in a fancy carriage, I think he just got out of the carriage and walked. Like he in his day, he didn't want to be this super famous guy. He just wasn't like I don't think he did. He didn't really do shit with his life until he was in his forties. But then once he was in his forties, he just became this very effective guy. And I mean, I don't know. He just always needed a fucking cause. Um, but it's it's funny because I read it, and obviously we're American, so we look at the American Revolution a certain way. But I don't always look at him as like the hero in a lot of situations. A lot of times you're reading it and you're like, this guy is stirring up a lot of trouble. I mean, we know how this went, but he's getting a lot of people in a dangerous frame of mind and he's good at it. And he's, he's 
very manipulative. So it's always kind of funny because I like to read with a sense of humor sometimes. So he'll do things that are just so backstabby and just dickish. And I'll have on my America fuck yeah hat that just cheers everything on because he's American and he's saying fuck you to the British. But then your realist hat where it's like, that's not really cool. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think when I, I remember when I was reading a lot about the Revolutionary War, there were a lot of times where I would, I would be like, wait a minute, that's kind of fucked up. <laughs> like that's kind of really fucked up what they're doing right now. And if it, if it happened today with some little activist group, I would be like, what the fuck are you guys doing? You animals. But because it's like, oh, well, these are the founders. They're revered. They're respected. It's like, we got to kind of just like accept that it's okay. But yeah, I definitely remember with, with Sam Adams too, seeing a couple times where I was like, oh, this guy's, this guy's being an asshole right now. And I have to imagine if he was around today and there was some cause that garnered revolutionary sentiment or just whatever, whatever cause he would be involved in, he would definitely be lurking in 4chan, 8chan. Maybe maybe he'd uh, be the founder of like 16chan or something. Jesus. I mean, I'm just thinking like where's a place where you can go and anonymously spew shit that will influence uh, – a certain crowd. So yeah, that's my, maybe maybe you'd have a fake Twitter account or something. Yeah. Before you head out, feel free to subscribe and rate us, leave a friendly comment on the way out. It really helps the podcast when you do. And if you enjoy what we're doing, you can find our Twitter or Instagram in the description below. We'll keep you updated about the show and we'll also fill your feed with plenty of good old fashioned memes. Follow us on Facebook as well. If you're a Facebook person, just type the Almost Presidents podcast into that search bar. And lastly, you can write into the show. Our Gmail is the Almost Presidents podcast at gmail.com, which you can also find in the description.